0: Hello brothers and sisters, if you've listened to many sermons, including some of mine, you've probably heard a preacher at some point comment on the way they've been tested by God while preparing the sermon. If you preach a sermon about anger, it's pretty likely that the Holy Spirit will shine a light on anger in your heart. If you preach a sermon on generosity you are likely to find out how much you are like Scrooge and how little like God. God opposes the proud. The Bible says that in James, 1 Peter, Proverbs, many places. If I come into a sermon about any subject at all, thinking I've got it sorted, I am guaranteed to find God opposing me. I don't have anything sorted not in my own strength, and thinking otherwise is pride. So in a battle between me, an ant, and God, who's going to win? Yes, I'm going to be smushed into ant goo, and God will have his way. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10, 13. We're near the end of February now, and I started preparing this sermon fairly early in January, blissfully unaware of what was about to happen. Over the course of a week, I read through the passage and made lots of notes. I then had a gap of a week or two before I sat down to start writing this sermon. In my notes on this passage, the passage we're going to read in a moment, I wrote a one-sentence summary of this scripture, its essence, what it boils down to. Here's that sentence. We should weep over our sin and rejoice in our God. We should weep over our sin and rejoice in our God. Can you see where this is going? Do you think, at that point, when I wrote that sentence, I could honestly say that was true of me. Actually, when I wrote it, I wasn't really thinking about my sin at all, not in any serious way. And to be honest, I wasn't really rejoicing in God. So guess what happened? Now, I'm not going to say that God sent the next few calamities Specifically to break me, Rob Pomeroy, a fairly insignificant human in the scheme of things, let's be honest. All the same, break me he did. The next couple of weeks were bad, really bad. And I wasn't thinking about this sermon at all. The second coronavirus wave hit and that meant our boys were back at home full time, two boys with special needs. This means less help overall with their care and more people in our house. Privacy is scarce. We had multiple issues with the care for Morgan, more stress. We had a really terrible night with poor Morgan, with both Sharon and I looking after him during the night. Our van broke down. We had a very challenging interaction with one of the professionals involved in planning our boys' future. Our road flooded. Carers couldn't reach the house for 36 hours. One of Sharon's favourite aunts died. I had a really, really unpleasant medicine-related experience. And a few other difficult things happened. And I came to the end of that period of testing having wept, cried out to God, and yes, rejoiced in him. I had the song, Is He Worthy? going round my head over and over again. You know, the song that has the repeated answer, He Is. And this worshipful focus on Christ was the only way through... A pretty dark period. Feeling broken, I looked at myself, I looked at how I am, the thoughts I entertain, the many parts of me yet to be transformed, and I didn't like what I saw without Christ. And I looked at Christ and the tears streamed down my face, repeatedly. And then slowly but surely, joy came. And at the end of this period, I sat down ready to start writing this sermon. I pulled out the notes I'd written two weeks before, and my eyes fell on that sentence I'd long since forgotten. We should weep over our sin and rejoice in our God. If I seem at all emotional as I preach this sermon, I hope this helps explain. I don't say any of this for sympathy or to draw attention to myself or to the challenges in my life. I know many of you face much harder trials than these. No, I want you to know that you are listening to a very imperfect man who survives only by the grace of God. I don't have things sorted, but I know someone who does. And I know that what we need to do right now, you, me, all of us, is to come to God with humble hearts, with our eyes on Jesus, and listen to what the Holy Spirit will say to us now through the word. Oh, our Father, speak to us, soften our hearts and open our ears, Lord, and please bless these words as I speak them so that everything that's done is to your glory alone. Amen. Let's read this passage then. Ezra 3, verses 7 to 13. You may want to grab your Bible, because the words aren't going to be displayed on screen today. Ezra 3, verses 7 to 13. Then the people hired masons and carpenters and bought cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, paying them with food, wine and olive oil. The logs were brought down from the Lebanon mountains and floated along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa, for King Cyrus had given permission for this. The construction of the Temple of God began in mid-spring, during the second year after they arrived in Jerusalem. The workforce was made up of everyone who had returned from exile, including Zerubbabel, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priests, and all the Levites. The Levites, who were 20 years old or older, were put in charge of rebuilding the Lord's temple. The workers at the temple of God were supervised by Jeshua, with his sons and relatives, and Cadmiel and his sons, all descendants of Hodaviah. They were helped in this task by the Levites of the family of Hennadad. When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets. And the Levites, descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as King David had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good. His faithful love for Israel Endures forever. Then all the people gave a loud, a great shout, praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise. That could be heard far in the distance. This is quite a scene, isn't it? It's probably one that's hard to visualise, let alone understand thousands of years later. How can we put ourselves into the place of those returned Israelites to understand, to feel the visceral essence, the passion and emotion of this moment in their history. We have here a people who have been forcibly removed from their homeland. In a moral sense, it was their own fault. God gave them warning after warning. They ignored them, and there were consequences. Possibly many of them hadn't fully appreciated the privilege and joy it was to worship at the temple. In Jerusalem. You don't know what you've got till you lose it. And those captives taken from their homes into a foreign land away from this phenomenal beautiful place of worship, how they must have regretted their choices and repented and missed their homeland and longed to be back so they could rightly worship God. For some of them, the very oldest, it could have been up to 70 years of longing. And even those who weren't old enough to remember and those who were born in exile, they would have heard the stories, the tear-spattered accounts of the promised land, the land that God had given and that the Israelites had sold for some unimportant cheap thrills. And now not only are they back, but they're right at the focal point, the epicenter, the most important place in the entire land to start a project to put things right. And so a very important order of business is to make a new place of worship so they can gather together and bow before God as they and their ancestors should have done all those years before. Have you ever lost a favourite possession, a teddy bear, a diary, a Bible, your car, and then been so delighted when you found it again? Multiply that feeling by a thousand, a million, and mix in with that all these other feelings. Grief of all the years lost, sorrow, penitence at your part in causing it, plus... A real spiritual joy that comes from being in a place God has prepared for you. Can you imagine it? And so they begin. There are lots of details in this passage, and you might wonder why they're there. Why, for example, in verse 7, did they buy cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, paying them with food, wine, and olive oil? why is that mentioned? Why is it relevant? If you go out and buy milk, does it particularly matter whether you bought it from Aldi, Tesco, or your local co-op? I mean, other than the price difference? Tyre and Sidon, what's the deal? Let's look at 1 Kings 5. Here, David has died, his son Solomon is now king, and Solomon is getting ready to build the first temple, the one that was destroyed when the Israelites were carried off to Babylon. One King Kings five verses one to eleven. King Hiram of Tyre had always been a loyal friend of David. When Hiram learned that David's son Solomon was the new king of Israel, he sent ambassadors to congratulate him. Then Solomon sent this message back to Hiram. You know that my father David was not able to build a temple to honour the name of the Lord his God, because of the many wars waged against him by surrounding nations. He could not build until the Lord gave him victory over all his enemies. But now the Lord my God has given me peace on every side. I have no enemies, and all is well. So I am planning to build a temple to honour the name of the Lord my God, just as he had instructed my father David. For the Lord told him, your son, whom I will place on your throne, will build the temple to honour my name. Therefore, please command that cedars from Lebanon be cut for me. Let my men work alongside yours, and I will pay your men whatever wages you ask. As you know, there is no one among us who can cut timber like you Sidonians. When Hiram received Solomon's message, he was very pleased and said, praise the Lord today for giving David a wise son to be king of the great nation of Israel. Then he sent this reply to Solomon. I have received your message and I will supply all the cedar and cypress timber you need. My servants will bring the logs from the Lebanon mountains to the Mediterranean Sea and make them into rafts and float them along the coast to whatever place you choose. Then we will break the rafts apart so you can carry the logs away. You can pay me by supplying me with food for my household. So Hiram supplied as much cedar and cypress timber as Solomon desired. In return, Solomon sent him an annual payment of 100,000 bushels of wheat for his household and 110 gallons of pure olive oil. Did you notice anything there? tried to make it obvious. So there are about 500 years between the first temple and the second temple, the temple that Solomon built and the temple that we're seeing started in the book of Ezra. And yet, though it's been 500 years, when they start building this new temple, what do they want to do? They want to build it according to the pattern of the first temple, right down to where they source the wood and how they pay for it. In Ezra, they bought cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, logs brought down from the mountains of Lebanon. In 1 Kings, 500 years before, they bought logs from the mountains of Lebanon, from the king of Tyre. Ezra, they paid for the wood with food, wine, and olive oil. 1 Kings, they paid for this with wheat and olive oil. So bear this in mind when you read this passage. The details are here because they were of the utmost importance to this project. There are two particular themes to draw out today. I've already mentioned one about weeping and rejoicing, and we'll return to that in a moment. The other theme is striving to please God. We know, don't we, that we can't earn our salvation. We can't make things right with God. And yet, time and time again, the Bible tells us to strive for godliness, to be holy as God is holy, to pursue spiritual gifts. These are all active things that cost us time and effort. As children of a holy God, there is work for us to do and there is a right way for us to do it. So the Israelites, if they're going to build a house for God, they want to do it properly. And the way to do it properly is the way it was built before. And this isn't because of tradition particularly, though tradition was important in their culture. No, it's because God himself prescribed so many details about his own place of worship. They wanted to please God, to do as he instructed. When we set out on a new project, a new enterprise, how often do we ask God, how should we do this, Lord? I changed jobs in August last year, and that was a great blessing. But did I explicitly say to God, Lord, how can I best serve you in this place? I didn't. Not at the time. I was so excited. Colossians 3.23, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Since we're working for the Lord, let's not forget, as I did, to seek his face and ask him what he wants of us, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. We get a sense when we read this part of the Israelites' story that they knew they'd messed up. Thinking of human nature, when's the time we most want to do things well? Well, apart from when we want to impress a girl, fellas. It's when we've made a mistake, when we've blown it, when we know we've done something wrong. For most people, for most Christians, That provokes a desire to do better next time. And when your motivation is to please the most important person in your life, God, the details become really important, don't they? And so we see this throughout this passage. Let's do this right. Let's please God. Living to please God, that's our first theme. And our other theme, weeping over our sin and rejoicing in our God. Let's reread verses 10 to 13. Ezra 3 10 to 13. When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets. And the Levites, descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord just as King David had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a a great shout, praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. I should pause a moment here. Since I first mentioned weeping over our sin, probably someone listening became uncomfortable. Maybe that was you. Does this idea Unsettle you. We're forgiven all our sin, aren't we? Why should we weep over it? Surely all we need to do is be grateful for our salvation. If you're thinking that, I understand where you're coming from. And yes, we must celebrate all that Jesus has done for us. And yet, weeping over our sin, our own sin, the sins of our families, the sins of our nation, the sin of the human race, we have strong scriptural support for this before and after the resurrection of Christ. We'll look at some of that scriptural support in a moment. But first, let me ask you this. How can we be truly grateful for our salvation until we understand what we've been saved from? How can we fully understand grace until we appreciate how dirty, broken, and wicked we are, but for Christ? We don't like to think of ourselves as dirty or wicked. Speaking as a Westerner, that's not the Western way. It's certainly not the British way. We mustn't let our culture rob us of a full appreciation of the mercy of God. The contrast between his holiness and our unrighteousness is absolute. The gap between his expectation and our achievement is a chasm that can't be bridged except by the cross of Christ. We don't need Jesus as a one-time, single moment in history experience. We need him every minute, every hour, every day. No one knew this better than the Apostle Paul. Here's agonizing over sin for you. Romans 7, 21 to 24, he writes, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me, that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? He's a miserable person. In other translations, he calls himself a wretched man. Yes, this is Paul, who had a profound understanding of how Jesus had saved him. He isn't weeping over his sin because he's forgotten about his salvation. He's weeping over his sin precisely because he remembers his salvation. The salvation throws the sin into starker relief. The stronger the light, the darker the shadows appear. Paul wasn't the only apostle to feel this way. Let's look at James 4. James chapter 4 verses 7 to 9. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, and gloom instead of joy. James is speaking to a congregation of believers, and he's telling them, even though they are saved, to humble themselves before God and to lament over their ungodliness. Weeping over sin is for believers. We don't talk about this much in the Western church, do we? Psalm 38 verse 18 David writes but i i am deeply sorry for what i have done deeply sorry this isn't an empty apology a polite excuse a formula of words we've been taught that magically puts things right deep sorrow deep sorrow But let me be extremely clear here. This isn't a self-punishing or self-indulgent kind of sorrow. This doesn't arise from looking at ourselves and saying, oh, woe is me, what a mess I am. No, rather, I would suggest that the more we look to Jesus, the more we let his light shine on us, the more acutely we'll feel these occasional glances at ourselves. Our sorrow for our sin doesn't come so much from feeling our unworthiness as it does from seeing his worthiness. Jesus, make us more like you. Break us if you have to. And I know you have to. Make us like you, Lord. The two passages I just quoted from Romans and James, neither of them ended there where i finished the quotes and i thank god that they didn't otherwise we would be left in a miserable state in the final verse of romans romans 7 romans 7 verse 25 paul says thank god the answer is in jesus christ our lord so you see how it is in my mind i really want to obey god's law but because of my sinful nature i am a slave to sin thank god the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And James continues, James 4 verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honour. He will lift you up in honour. The answer is Jesus, and he lifts us up in honour. Honour that we've done nothing to deserve. And so in the last two verses of Ezra 3 Ezra 3:12 3, to 13 it is no surprise now to read this one last time but many of the older priests levites and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation the others however were shouting for joy the joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance Brothers and sisters, let our joy be mingled with our grief. Let us despise our wickedness and glorify our Saviour. Let's weep over our sin and rejoice in our God. Because here is the apparent contradiction. We are not worthy. He is worthy. He makes us worthy. This paradox... All our contradictions are resolved in Christ. In him, we rejoice. Our Lord and Saviour, we honour you. We ask for your help as we live for you, knowing that we can't produce anything of value in our own strength, But when we lean into your strength, Lord, the result is so valuable. The building of your kingdom. And Lord, let us not glibly forget or gloss over our sins. They are many. We don't focus on them, God. But we do acknowledge that we remain people who sin. We live in a nation of sin. And we and our nation need you. But we know, God, that you have paid completely and utterly and for all time the price that covers all that sin. And we must daily acknowledge that. And thank you for it. We are so grateful. Our Lord and King. Amen.